Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast on Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined by Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, are you in your last week of classes? How's the end of semester treating you? We are we're well, but we're not quite to the end yet. We go a little bit later. So uh, thank you for that painful reminder there, panel. It's my pleasure. Uh, We here are in our last week of classes, and boy, it could not come quick enough for me. And for an even more painful reminder of how university teaching schedules can differ, I I go now to our other co-host, Harvey Young of Northwestern University. Harvey, are you just beginning the spring quarter? What's up? We are just entering midterms, so we're still about another month or two away from being done. Okay, well, I will try not to gloat so much, but man, it feels good to be one just in the last week of teaching. Oh, you guys are going to love it when you get there. Um, Today, yeah, sorry. Uh, Today on the podcast, We are going to talk, first of all, about performance criticism and liveness. We will ask whether scholars and critics ought to always see the live show that they are writing or talking about in person, and we'll interrogate the extent to which, in an age of increasing hybridity between live and mediatized ways of viewing, the live event still constitutes something crucial. Uh, Second, we will talk about MFA degrees. MFAs in acting, directing, and design, their value, their cost, and their place in 21st century theater and performance education. And finally, for our third segment, we will be joined by Patricia Ibarra, president of ATHA. ATHA last month announced an initiative concerning adjunct and contingent labor, and Patty will be joining us to talk about that and working conditions for people in our field um, and ATHA's plans and what else can be done. Before we get to those segments, the news roundup, Aster working sessions have been posted. Everything is trans. We will put the link to the working session call on our podcast homepage. Deadlines are June 1st. Um, I know that both Sarah and I are co-convening different working sessions. So check out those working sessions and send us an abstract. Um, Next, Jill Dolan, uh, leading theater and performance scholar and current dean of the college at Princeton, has been elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, an exciting development for our field. Also, Paula Vogel completed the requirements for her PhD from Cornell University. This is a fascinating story. Uh, Vogel had left Cornell while in the process of pursuing her PhD after, I believe, a couple of her committee members left the university. Vogel then left Cornell essentially in ABD status and, of course, went on to become a highly acclaimed playwright, uh, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, and and a really big figure in theater education, especially training playwrights. Um, So on April 13th, she went back to Cornell, and uh, her most recent play, Indecent, was given a reading and was, from what I understand, accepted as uh, completing the requirements for her dissertation. So this seems like a really interesting event. I would love to get the whole story. should reach out to Sarah Warner. I know she was talking in social media quite a bit about this and, and may have been, in fact, instrumental in making it happen in the first place. But, you know, she and Nick Salvato, who is chair at Cornell now, I'm sure have the inside scoop. So maybe a, a, a brief 
chat with them or insights from them. Yeah. Sarah, Nick, if you're listening, you know, you can send the full story to panel. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Uh, We would love to know more about this. Finally, uh, we wanted to note the passing of John Erickson. John was a professor at OSU. He taught in the English department there. Uh, He wrote about theater and philosophy, and especially on the concept of presence, which I think is especially interesting given the, the topic of our first segment today. Um, he wrote The Fate of the Object, published by Michigan in 1995, and of course uh, will be dearly missed. So I believe we're ready to move on to our first segment. Again, performance, criticism, and liveness. Sarah has an article that is forthcoming. It will be published by the journal Theater this summer that concerns um, the extent to which we ought to have seen the things that we're writing and talking about. Uh, Sarah, do you want to tell us a bit more about what you're writing about? Sure. Well, this this is a piece that I started working on a, a few years ago and and basically looking at what is the status of recorded theater and performance as a form of spectatorship and how that changes how we relate to it. And this kind of interesting question of when does theater and performance criticism tip over into theater and performance history? And the latter, of course, you're not expected to be there. The former, you are expected to be there. And for me, it became interesting in the context of uh, really a kind of emergence, a kind of rapid blooming of different kinds of performance recordings, which for a long time worked in a kind of documentary status of what I would call sort of a status of denial, right? So that you felt like you didn't get the whole thing. There were gaps, there were absences, they were incomplete. And the and the rhetoric around them was, oh, the recording is terrible. And in some ways, I think, and for certain artists and companies, the recordings were intentionally terrible so that you didn't have a sense of what it was like to be there. And then with increasing not only quality but affordability of digital recording mechanisms, better video cameras, better editing, more access for everybody, suddenly you get recordings that are now much, much better, much more interesting, show you things, uh, including perspectives that are not available to the audience. So my question kind of builds on uh, other conversations. Matthew Reason has you know, written a book about documentation and, and theater spectatorship. And there's been, you know, Susan Kozel has written about telematics and, and virtual spectatorship, but kind of looking particularly at recordings um, that that give us access to a performance or seem to be the whole of the performance. It may even offer perspectives that are not available to live audience members and how that might change the way we think about being there or what we've seen or haven't seen. This is really interesting. Um, In a way, the arguments that you're getting into in this article have a lot to do with the sort of performance ontology debate that many of us are very familiar with. But it seems like you're actually looking at a couple of different questions. One is, do we really need to have seen the performance piece that we're writing about? Is there a sort of claim to authority that has to involve having been there, especially when that's apparently rather easy to fake, I guess, or when it's when it's you know quite possible to get enough information about something and write about it without having seen it. And then on the other hand, I think, Sarah, in this article, you're getting more you're getting closer to a sort of more radical statement, which would be that we shouldn't think that the live co-present viewing experience is actually special, precious, absolutely crucial to what we do. Am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the other work is kind of danced uh, danced around this. And in fact, 
when we were doing uh, test recordings, we looked at an article um, called Liveness, Phelan, Auslander, and Off- After by Daniel Meyer Dinkroff in the Journal of Dramatic Theory and Criticism and sort of talked it talked a lot about, you know, what is the, the sort of ontology debate. I think for me, the challenge that I found interesting to embrace was what if we kind of throw off this kind of equivalency concern and and just say, okay, let's let's say I've seen a recording of it and and if I were to treat that as the performance, does my response change significantly from from sitting there in the in the audience? And I think there are a couple of domains where this has real impact. One is obviously in documentation and access and the ability to for more people to see more works than would be otherwise available, both in terms of ge- geography, but also economics. But then the other is, I think it has impact in terms of the emerging scholarship around immersive or first-person sort of user-driven theater experiences in which precisely you know that phrase you just used, panel of talking about right authority, um, you know, who has authority and what's verifiable, you know, who am I to say that your experience going through Sleep No More, you know, what you said about it was accurate or, you know, consonant with what I say about it and how do we make that argument? And in some ways, I think digital recordings tread in somewhat of the same the same area. So I was sort of worth, I thought it was worth engaging that and also then making a side argument, which is that if you've seen something live but you haven't looked at all of the digital documentation and kind of peripheral uh, response around it, can you also say that you've seen it, right? Do we now have an obligation to look at digital recordings? Because often they show us things that no, no individual human could see in the course of a performance. Yeah, I mean, I think the case that the digital recordings, the documentation is as substantial, is as important as one's primary co-present embodied witnessing is compelling, partly because there's never one way to see a performance. The, the, The same production or performance event can be seen very differently by people in the same room. You can see different Product, you know, different uh, uh, performances where the variables change. So, if by being present for the performance you're not in touch with something essential and something immutable, then aren't the various ways that audio and video recording equipment and sort of new frontiers in VR and other aspects of telematics, which is something you talk about in the article, aren't these really just sort of adding in more different perspectives that were always multiple, always different, etc.? My gut feeling is that there's a thrall uh, to the individual scholar, historian, critic uh, being present at the live event. Um, And the more we embrace these many possibilities, there's still a resistance uh, to giving up the the adoration of that individual person being present on site, uh, being there live. Performance scenarios are always mediated. Uh, if you're at a live event, depending on the day, where you're sitting, uh, whether you're looking at someone holding a cell phone or looking at the event through that person's cell phone, you know you realize that everything is filtered. Nevertheless, we still adhere to the solo scholar on site being there live as the authority. But when you push against it, you realize that it's false. It's an artificial construct. There is no great benefit from being the one person live at an event as opposed uh, to the many other perks uh, that you can gain from other mediated encounters. I think you're really onto something. I, I made, in preparation for this recording, a list of a few different arguments that would you know, sort of 
be on the other side of what I think Sarah is advocating for. But you bring up one that I think is really important that I didn't think of, which is it's it's kind of like cultural capital. I think that Phil Oslander gets into this in liveness that there's something about the narrative uh, cachet of saying, you know, I saw the Rolling Stones in 1968 or whatever, that there's a sort of, you know, sense of being able to state I was there that has something that is almost by an economics of scarcity special, but then get, can be transmuted into scholarly authority. So if you're one of the lucky people who's seen Hamilton, for example, with the original Broadway cast, then you feel entitled to say things about it that you don't otherwise. And that sort of cross applies to a variety of different scholarly or critical situations. I sincerely believe that really good criticism comes from multiple viewings. Uh, there isn't that much to be gained from seeing something only once. You can't take in the whole scene. Your perspective, your focus is always limited. For example, if it's a person who has seen Hamilton only once, then that's going to be different than a person who's seen it multiple times, like three or four times. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd rather lean toward that work of that other person who has seen or looked at a media text again and again and use that as the basis of scholarly writing than to champion the work of a person who's only seen it once. That's the difference in my mind between popular journalism and more rigorous, uh, more rigorous scholarly study. Of course, ideally you do both, right? Ideally, you would be a person who would look at documented, mediated traces and texts uh, as well as attending the live event. You know, I think that's something that we should all aspire to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, but certainly I do think that there is something artificial about someone only seeing something once and then using that one-time viewing uh, as the basis of authority. Well, the the only other thing I would say uh, to argue sort of against myself is is the the idea that that it's not just an intellectual or a semiotic experience to see something live, that there is a physical embodied phenomenological response that one has to an event taking mm -hmm. place in front of and that one is participating in and that that is a form of knowledge and ex and experience and context that informs the work in a way that mm -hmm. arguably the mediated version can't the the sort of that's that's really one critical part and i don't know that you can totally replace or replicate that i think the more than privileging and i was sort of trying to move away cuz a lot of the these discussions have been located in you know a kind of oslander v phelan which I just, I don't see that being terribly productive anymore, was to move into a different mode where we start not pretending I, that we've seen things we haven't seen and that we stop privileging only one form of spectatorship as being a kind of in full encapsulation of everything that spectatorship a performance, a performance is and, and simply start marking, you know, I saw, this is where I saw this and this is the information that I have rather than conflating that under a kind of what I think often we do is a kind of assumption of a of a of a live co-presence that that may or may not be accurate. I mean, the example I give is I saw you know Robert Wilson's and Philip Glass's and Lucinda Child's Einstein on the Beach uh, three different times, and I saw it from three different parts in the audience. I saw it from the third row at the preview in Ann Arbor. I saw it from the middle of the theater. Um, you know, uh, sort of middle of the orchestra in Toronto. And then I saw it from, you know, way up in the balcony uh, at BAM. And, you know, so I had my still life, my portrait and my landscape view so I could take <laughs> in. And this is a show in which you can actually see a whole lot of things happening because 
it's hap- you know, because it's many things are moving so slowly. And yet then I also watched it numerous times on the streaming video that they had while the show was still touring. And there are things in that recording that are not visible from either of the three, or I would say any of the viewing positions that are available to a live audience member. So in many ways, you know, this is a, a sort of huge epic work, but I don't think it's so different than many others. Uh, in terms of what you can sort of attend. And so I, I would have no problem with someone writing about Einstein on the beach um, who had not seen it live. And as long as they kind of, as long as they said that and described what they had seen and why what they had seen was was meaningful. And I suspect with things like NT Live and many of the, and you know, the Met Live in HD and these kinds of, you know, streaming uh, services, the increasing of video recordings and, and digital, not to mention the fact that artists themselves now are making more and more recordings as a way of circulating work. And I think that raises a whole different set of tensions, right? Who who can afford to make their work available as opposed to like Tina Singal, who refuses to have any documentation of work available because it makes the live experience a scarcity, right? Um, I think the I think these are conversations that we're going to continue to have. But I'd be curious to ask Harvey as an editor: uh, Do you get people writing about work ex- explicitly in the context of of recordings? And would you cons- would you consider that like you know like if somebody wanted to do like a performance review of you know Hamilton based solely on the YouTube videos? The White House <laughs> streaming thing, right? I mean, would you would you be willing to to include something like that, or would you be like, no, you really, I'd really rather have somebody who sat in the theater and saw it start to finish? Yeah, that would actually be really interesting. Uh, it, it, there's there's not a lack of popular journalistic accounts, essentially theater reviews of the play uh, Hamilton, right in. The New York Times and other newspapers, uh, but I'd be much more interested in, yeah, indeed, an article on the popular uh, impact, the wide uh, influence of Hamilton as measured by YouTube viewings and uh, an analysis of that Hamilton performance being beamed into the Grammy ceremony. Yeah, so that's something that I would definitely like to see. I don't think people write about live performance. Uh, even people who are ethnographers don't really do this. Um, a rigorous ethnographer takes notes and then refers to those notes as the basis of their criticism and writing. Right? They refer back to those field notes, uh, to the pictures, to the uh, recorded interviews that they made. Uh, and those recordings, those documented traces become the basis of their later scholarship, certainly as time passes on. So it's that part of it, that sort of documented core, that mediated element and trace uh, that I think we often don't spend enough time validating. I think the intervention that, Sarah, that you make in the article, and, and, and along the lines of what Harvey's just said, is really correct, which is that we shouldn't pretend that spectatorship only happens or only happens in a valuable or meaningful way in the live co-present moment, and that we're increasingly in a world where you have multiple and changing and new types of mediation between you and the performance event. One thing in a particip- in a preparation for this topic that I wondered though is if there isn't a you know strategic disciplinary claim that ought to be defended. For example, if we were to radicalize this argument to say that all spectatorship is mediatized and that you know media departments, film departments, music 
theater and performance departments are all just doing versions of the same thing. You could see that as the premise for, you know, sort of amalgamating our work into super departments where people are doing, you know, various takes on uh, audiovisual performance. You know, I think there's a strategic claim that is need, needs to be made. There's also the sort of social part of it, which is that when there's an audience there and the performers sense and respond to the audience, you get these feedback loops that don't quite exist when you are just, you know, when you're a spectator through a YouTube video or through a live stream. You know, stand-up comedy is a good example. You, Even though stand-up comedy can be transmitted through audio, through video, whenever stand-up is performed, it's performed in front of a live audience and then recorded with, you know, just rare exceptions. And this is partly because the audience is absolutely essential to what the performer is doing. And so that if we were to radicalize the argument to saying it's all, you know, it's all mediatized, it's all versions of memories or artifacts that aren't totally connected to the original, whatever that would be, um, there's certain things we lose sight of. Uh, the only thing I would say in response, which of course is an argument that comes up a, uh, up a lot, is that uh, there's all it's always mediated and it's always there's always some live audience. So even when you're doing something that's recorded, there are people in the room who are manipulating, you know, the objects who are doing the recordings. And if you do interviews with film actors, for example, they'll tell you they perform for the boom crew, right? They perform for the guy, you know, the boom operator. They perform for the, you know, the production assistants. They perform for, I mean, you know, a media event is not is not a bunch of technology surrounding a couple of bodies in an empty space, right? It's a highly uh, coordinated, orchestrated effort of many people operating many different machines, often in tandem with one another. And there are always humans on the other end of these recording devices. And that is, in fact, who people are often performing for and re-performing for, right? So whether it's a live event that gets captured in time or it gets broken up and and manipulated. Um, So I think in that sense, yes, there's always the kind of mediation that Harvey's talking about. But even within media, I think we could say there's always a live audience. Uh, It's just the, 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 you know, who that audience is changes. Next, the MFA degree. As some major universities are considering adding MFA programs, we wonder about the financial costs and the benefits of that degree, both as a source of training that can guide a performer or director or a designer into an artistic career and as a teaching credential. Harvey, do you want to tell us more about what you've been thinking on this topic recently? Yes, let's talk about the MFA. Looking at graduate programs from a meta perspective, you might say, uh, there is the general logic that universities like to invest and heavily subsidize uh, PhD training, doctoral training, because there's a belief that doctoral programs and doctoral training prepares a person for for the professoriate, right? Essentially a life as a scholar. However, that same commitment to subsidizing education, uh, think free tuition or tuition waivers, living stipends, you know, that rarely exists for other degree programs uh, that skew toward industry uh, or different professions such as the JD degree or the MBA or the MD. The MFA also finds itself caught between these two different perspectives of for funding, right? Is the MFA a professional degree uh, that prepares a person for life outside the academy and into industry, or is it more like the PhD and therefore deserving of subsidy because it prepares a practitioner slash artist slash scholar for a life in the academy? 
What are your thoughts? Well, you know, I was looking back over the research that Atha has been doing in the job market. And when you look at the pie charts that look at the 2012-2013 job postings and then the 2014-15 job postings, in both of those cases, the vast majority of jobs, an MFA is a qualification. That would suggest that a large proportion of our field, a large proportion of the teaching and the research is conducted by people with MFA degrees. And by that token, it should be seen along the lines of the PhD and it should be subsidized. Also, because frankly, and I don't know what research has been done on this, the MFA degree is not as remunerative as the MBA, the JD, the MD. You know, I think if if a university wants to expect most people to find funding for full tuition for an MBA, it's probably because they expect that the, they're going to be able to pay off a larger amount of debt. With the MFA, I don't. you don't get the sense that the majority of people who get an, M- an MFA are going to have lucrative careers in theater or entertainment. So by that token, it should be largely subsidized. I remember at an AFA conference years and years ago, I remember attending a talk by somebody who was very opposed to the MFA, not as a not in concept, but but because he believed that there were just too many of them, and and that they had become diluted, and that they weren't rigorous enough, and they weren't really feeding either kind of pipeline. And I remember him talking about the notion that in some ways, like aiming the MFA at academia was precisely what had diluted it. And I was reminded of that when, in preparing for this, I read through the anonymously posted column to the Chronicle of Higher Education about how useless a PhD in theater was because you should spend half the time uh, and much less energy, right? This is the writer's argument. Getting your MFA because you were just as likely to get a position teaching in a university or college theater department, but your investment would be much less and it would actually be more useful. And then, and if you read through the comment section, I mean, it, the comment section is always like, <laughs> you know, the fun part. You know, it's quite gladiatorial down there at times, but. You know, but it really re- reminded me of that earlier, uh, you know, conversation about, you know, what is the what is the MFA and 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 who is it for, and and reminding that not all MFAs are necessarily equal or have the same kinds of outcomes. There's also the question of value that we need to tackle here. You know, in the academy, we don't like to talk about money, or at least within the arts, right? Uh, to say that we like to say that there's an inherent value uh, to humanistic study, like there's an inherent value to the arts, uh, and we should not put a dollar sign on the importance of the work that we do. That being said, you know, I do think that you know, we have to be in conversation with university administrative administration you know, to talk about why it's important to not only fund uh, these programs, but also to reduce the debt burden on our students. I like to think of the MFA in theater as being similar to an MFA in creative writing, and essentially to say that uh, in the same way that we place a premium on sustaining the academy by subsidizing the education of future scholars, you know, I think that we need to say that, you know, we are placing uh, an emphasis on the importance of culture and the arts. Uh, there's some interesting asymmetries, I think, that are attached to this question. For example, you know, Sarah brings up that um, old article in the Chronicle, which just had seemed to have this premise that the MFA and the PhD are equivalent because a job is a job. And for most jobs in our field, an MFA suffices. So why spend twice the time, et cetera? But a job is not a job. And my suspicion is that 
in many places, I think the PhD is a qualification for the best jobs. In other words, I would imagine that the tenure stream jobs. Um, is that really the case? Um, I mean, the majority of faculty and theater departments have MFAs because, uh, in my estimation, of the need for people to teach acting, design, playwriting. Um, I, I, yeah, I would think so. I mean, we at WashU recently looked at the prospect of creating jobs here that are tenure stream for which an MFA would qualify you for the job. And we looked at a bunch of different institutions that were research intensive schools. And what we found, contrary, I'll say, to people's um, opinion, in other words, I've told people about the results of this search and they were surprised, that most research schools do not tenure people who have an MFA degree and not a PhD. That suggests a real asymmetry. And and we were not able to get, you know, approval for um, tenure stream consideration for people with MFAs. So yes, I think I think that the majority of faculty in our field have MFAs, not PhDs, but that um, a lot of where the good jobs are, the good security, the good re- resources, that that stuff goes disproportionately to people from PhDs, uh, with PhDs. Maybe this is why this conversation is necessary. Uh, if you were interested in learning directing, for example, you know, I think it'd be better to take a course or to study with a person who had spent you know three years in a graduate program solely studying directing, you know, as opposed to a person who only occasionally took a class or two in directing as part of a differently oriented program. But if you really want to study directing, you want to study with someone who has worked as a director, regardless of what degree they have. And there's a kind of, you know, the MFA in theater has always struck me as a bit of in a kind of tension between the person who has a professional practice and a career and a demonstrated track record of success and the PhD who has, you know, dedicated, you know, significant amounts of time and that, and that, you know, the best MFAs also have those kinds of career trajectories behind them. But, but those aren't always accessible everywhere. And obviously they lend themselves more towards, uh, you know, big theater centers uh, of which they're, you know, a handful in this country. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of different kind of dimensions. I think the MFA as a container holds a lot of complexity <laughs> within it and, and a lot of variability. Now, in our final segment, we turn our attention to working conditions in the field. Atha has uh, last month announced a major initiative looking at the way that adjunct and contingent labor is becoming an increasingly present issue in the field. We are very excited now to be joined by Patricia Ybarra, chair of the Department of Theater Arts and Performance Studies at Brown University and also president of ATHA. Um, For this segment, listeners, we just want to let you know that we recorded this at a separate time and Harvey Young was not able to make it. So on this segment, we just have Patty and Sarah and myself. Patty, welcome to On Tap. How are you doing out in Providence? I'm I'm doing well, thank you. Um, I thought I'd start off just by asking you why Atha is launching this initiative now, um, and you know what is the sort of origin of this project concerning adjunct and contingent labor? 
Um, I think we're launching it now because there's just been so much attention to the issues in the field. And I guess um, I don't think it was a completely reactive move. I'd like to think it was responsive, but I felt like um, organizations like the American Studies Association and the Modern Language Association were really taking the labor crisis head on in some really cognate fields that a number of our members were also members of those associations. So I, I thought it was time. So it really really began for us at ATHA when I became president-elect. And when you're president-elect of ATHA, you're also technically the chair of the strategic planning committee. So you work on ATHA's next strategic plan. But for me, I wanted to work on that. But I, I thought there were a couple of things that we really needed to sort of take head on. One was the adjunct labor crisis, and the other is diversity. And so what really happened is early on in, in being president-elect, I, I made a subcommittee on adjunct labor. And it really, I was having a really great conversation actually with someone who was on the committee, Geraldine Mascio, who's at the University of Kentucky, who had been recently been a dean and was going back into, I believe, a faculty position. And we were just talking about the difficulties of adjunct labor in our field and how, honestly, it's a little bit more complex and a little bit different than some other fields, particularly in the humanities, just because there's such a diversity of kinds of labors that we hire in theater departments. And so it's not just a question of, oh, they teach intro classes, or they'll, you know, we hire adjuncts to teach the composition classes of the first year language classes, but there was really a sort of variety of factors. And the other piece was really thinking about teaching artists, so people who are in the field who are not necessarily looking for a full-time job in academia, but probably are looking for fair practices in academia, and that's a little bit different than other fields. So we started to think about what it was that we um, wanted to say, and we, we really spent a good, I think, year figuring out what we wanted to do. So was it, okay, we're going to write a white paper? And it was like, okay, we can write a white paper. But, you know, really taking Henry Biles' um, initiative on data seriously, we thought, well, we can't really write a white paper without doing some real research. So we worked on our own as ATHA for a while. Um, It's new to ATHA, but I've been living with it for about two years now. So I think it almost took about two years before we'd actually drafted uh, a survey in some ways. So you, you touch on a couple of, um, of, of points that I think are really interesting to our listeners, one of which is that the, the field of theater and performance studies is distinct. This is our neighborhood of a larger labor crisis that's affecting higher education more broadly. But what is your subjective sense of what makes this issue distinct within our discipline or our field? Does it have to do with uh, the certain types of classes that are taught or offered? Yeah, well, it's it's actually, it's, it's increasingly complicated. So, you know, I think in some ways, I'm not sure how much theater is distinct from other arts departments. Um, but I think there are some, there are some theoretical things, and there are some really practical things, and they get really kind of, um, mixed in some interesting ways. So I think in terms of practical questions, and I'll just give you, like, this is kind of anecdotal, but I think it'll give you an example of what I'm, I'm talking about. But one example that happens in dance a lot is um, the argument that's made for why people are hired as adjuncts and not either in a, like, a permanent lecture position, which may not be tenure or tenure track, but would have sort of a three to five year appointment with a fair salary and benefits, for example, is that, oh, we can't hire one person to teach all the different kinds of technique we need. And so we have to, there's no person who's going to be qualified to teach ballet, modern, salsa, 
etc. And so the argument used in arts departments is often that the technique is so specific that there's no way to put together a full-time position that would allow people to teach all of those different techniques. We could argue whether that's not that's true for scholars, but in theater generalist positions, the idea is that when you hire a theater scholar, they're going to potentially be able to teach outside of their, you know, their discipline in some ways. And that in, in when we talk about doing technique classes or acting or directing classes, there isn't that same supposition, right? So that seems like this very pragmatic thing. Well, the, per, the person who teaches ballet can't teach modern, right? But on another level, there is a really um, interesting, um, I guess, ideological frame about what technique is and how technique is different from an intellectual labor, which we assume someone can learn and a technique someone can't learn. So there are these kind of deep theoretical questions about how we think about practice, technique, and knowledge production, and they affect who becomes a permanent faculty member and who does not. Um, You know, I don't know if we if we hire more or fewer, but I do think there's a way in which we use the specificity of technique as a way to not hire people in full-time positions. And at the same time, it's, you know, it, it needs to be said that people who are often teaching technique are often women, queer folks, etc. So one goal of the survey is to see that in, role, in, in professions that have been feminized, and I use that word really advisedly because I think it's, it's probably a more complex gender construction than that, right? But in um, forms of teaching that have often been filled in the past, often by women, sometimes um, by queer folks, there's a way in which those have been undervalued. So in thinking about these kind of theoretical issues and, and that might be underpinning the, the situation in certain ways, I'm also... I, I would wonder, and I, I don't know if you have any data on this yet or, or if this is even an area that you're exploring, but I would imagine that geographically things change quite a bit as well. And, uh, you know, certainly types of schools, you know, small versus large and where the theater and performance departments sort of are situated within other institutions. But I'm also thinking that, you know, in certain uh, geographic areas, there's a greater diversity of people available that has an impact on just kind of basic labor uh, supply and demand, um, but also in terms of how productions function in their community, right, and what the expectation is. So there are some places where the university theater is also a kind of major cultural center, and so the expectation is that it has a certain level of professionalism and that requires bringing people in maybe from outside the area and things like that is that is that a factor or a concern as you're working through it is I mean uh, we didn't ask so much about in such a open way about how a dense urban center for example that might be thought of as cosmopolitan in some ways might you know ask for a different level of artistic rigor or talent. We do know that things are regional though. So in the survey, we actually ask people about their region and actually the population density of the place in which they're teaching. And the idea there is to really think through how urban centers, as you point out, which might have more artists who are living there and available, more just more laborers in a pool, might function differently in terms of what they're willing to offer than places that maybe are less populated, in which case, you know, there might be places that are are smaller and they do higher adjuncts, but they might have more security because they know they're going to have that job coming around. They might be smaller departments where they only hire one or two adjuncts. So while the 
pay may not be equitable to what we would imagine. I think there are going to be different pressures there. And so, um, I mean, I do know, you know, from personal experience that often if you're in a dense urban center, there's a way that that can drive wages down and you could have be offered much less to teach a course than you would be in a place where they have to actually maintain a relationship with you because there's not another person to fill that that position, right? But I think that is exactly right. But it, it teases out all these really th- theoretical issues, right, about what we assume is cosmopolitan, what we assume is art, what we assume is aesthetic. So I guess my goal is to use the, the survey definitely first and foremost as an advocacy tool for people in the profession, both ATHA members and not. But, you know, as long as we handle all the research protocols, I would like to think this data can be used for research purposes to actually get at theoretical questions. Like, I think it would be a little remiss if someone 20 years later couldn't come out of this data and, you know, say this was a great advocacy document, but also there are stuff in these interviews that let us know how people think of aesthetics, labor, and gender together, for example, and be able to use this really as research. So Mm -hmm. that would be my goal. That's interesting, partly because one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was how people working on this project hope that the eventual results of this initiative will be better working conditions for people. On the one hand, it strikes me that the um, actions that have already been committed to the research initiative, uh, discounting participation in the conference for adjunct faculty, opening up the job bank, um, that these are all you know, great ways to use ATHA's resources. But I wonder about on the level of you know, actually creating direct action that might spur better negotiations if there's always going to be a sort of indirect action between professional associations like ATHA and the decision makers at the university level. I bring this up partly because at WashU, we just actually had a successful um, uh, protest that succeeded in gaining Uh, concessions from the university for adjuncts. There was a walkout that was planned and it was stopped because the university um, agreed to a contract with better compensation, use of facilities, job security. This puts me in mind of the fact that perhaps a successful model for actually improving those conditions has to do with coalition building among faculty, students. In other words, at the university institutional level rather than the professional association level. Do we think that ATHA, ASTER, MLA, AAUP, these organizations, for example, is it always going to be an indirect um, effect that they can have on actual working conditions? Well, yes and no. Um, Yes, in the sense that to to retain our 401c3 status, right, we cannot do certain things as an association. So there's a legal answer to that question. On a different level, I guess I see it a little bit differently being in the position of chair. So something I think ATHA can do, which I don't know if I would call it direct or indirect, honestly, is that I and 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 I should I should preface this by saying that we're not just surveying people who are um, in adjunct positions. We're also doing an equally complicated survey with department chairs, and so the idea is that what chairs have sometimes asked is, "Can you give us a document that we could take to deans or provost or to finance people that explains 
why certain kinds of labor are fair or not fair. So rather than thinking of chairs, I mean, I guess in a strictly Marxian sense, right, instead of thinking of, or I don't even know if it's a strict, in, in a vernacular, lazy Marxist sense, rather than thinking of chairs as management, I'm trying to think of them as labor and think of them as advocates. So I think it's indirect in the sense that what I think we're trying to set up are tools for people who are ATHA members to use to be really good allies to these more direct labor struggles. Of course, I mean, I think if ATHA members want to participate in these more direct labor struggles, they can. Um, I don't know that we're going to come out the other side of this and be like openly advocate unionization, for example. I don't know if that would overstep any kind of boundary, but I do think I think of as an advocacy tool and not one that, you know, just sits on a website, like one that actually gets sent in some form to every chair of a theater department in the United States and that they can actually use. In addition to all of the advocacy uh, that you're describing that that is really, I think, could be very positive for everyone coming out of this is to expose in a certain way the one of the kind of unspoken areas of our field, which is that of pay. And I think it's, you know, typical of American society that we don't consider it appropriate and polite company to discuss what your salary is. But my sense, you know, having worked on both sides of the public, private, uh, small, large divide, is that there's really a a growing rift uh, between private institutions and public institutions in the United States. And I think we, because we don't have access to anything beyond the kind of aggregated data from the Chronicle of Higher Education, which, you know, gets pretty skewed whether you've got a medical school or not, whether you have a law school or not, and a business, right? I mean, um, you know, I think it's, I think we're losing sight of just how uh, diverse salaries have become at every level. And my sense is, and I don't have any data to back this up, but my sense is that, you know, theater typically lags behind uh, many other humanities departments. Um, and I think there are issues around this question of, you know, things, areas and fields or, you know, subfields that are perceived as being more feminine um, also lag behind in terms of, of pay. So I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about the, the sort of bringing this to the, to the forefront as a, as a field and perhaps also drawing attention to some other discrepancies and, and uh, issues that are going on in terms of labor and, and pay and, and income uh, distribution right throughout, throughout our field. Yeah. I mean, one, one um, aspect of that issue that you bring up is that I imagine, I mean, when you, when one speaks to administrators about this issue, um, they will talk about the labor market, right? And they will point out that the labor market is flooded um, and that part of the reason why compensation for instructors in certain areas is not um, higher is that that's a, the result of a market force. Now, when you're talking about people teaching in the arts, um, they're going to have different opportunities for employment outside of the university than will say people trained in economics or um, the hard sciences, et cetera. Um, you know, this is, I think, part of, in a way, those two types of inequality can be linked, I suppose, but uh, that's one sees that through the perspective of looking at market forces. Yeah, um, no, I think that's true. I mean, it's interesting. I, um, I have an administration that's not as... Um, that doesn't talk about market forces in exactly that way right now, and I feel really fortunate 
um, that our provost is actually um, a scholar of labor systems. So um, he does understand what I'm talking about more often than not, which doesn't mean that, you know, we yeah. give great contracts to adjuncts or that it's um, it's fair across the board. I think it really depends on different departments. I mean, this might be a little tangential, but it's interesting because the other supposition, right, with hiring artists who are also teaching, and this is where it gets really complicated, right, is that there are these ways in that they're in a hybrid labor field, right, because there's a way in which they have to deal with their labor as an artist in the market, in the world. There's a way they need to deal with it in the university. And of course, those things are interdependent, right? If, you know, all artists were paid a middle-class living wage, I assume that many more of them would choose not to teach. They would spend more time preparing their art. I mean, I'm sure some people would like to teach, but it's a fact that there's a codependency in some places in this country between the arts market and the sort of the academic world for exactly this reason, which is that there are, there are very few ways for an artist to make even a sort of a sustainable life. So those, those worlds of, you know, how the market market works are always intertwined and it's and I think about this a lot because the, the departments that, that that understand this sort of really complicated world this is a working professional so in like say an engineering department I think a lot about how engineering departments work because in an engineering department right someone's making their whatever they're making their wage which is probably equivalent to our wages right at private institutions or more um, and then when they adjunct okay you know is it such a big deal that they're being paid $5,000 or $8,000 or whatever for a course because they have this other job that is a mainstream job that gives them a middle class salary but also gives them the cultural capital to be wanted as an adjunct instructor as someone in the field, right? So there's a way in which like a business school or a law school or an engineering school plays with that relationship in very different ways. They're getting benefits from their other jobs, so they don't need the university necessarily to give them benefits as an adjunct instructor. With artists, it's all over the map. Sure, maybe an, an equity actor who's working very, very consistently makes a middle-class wage and has insurance from the union, or a director who's working so much they have their union stuff from the SDC. But more often than not, that's not true for artists who are adjuncting. So all these sort of job security that are supposed to come from elsewhere when a professional comes into the academy to teach one class don't apply. So I think it's really actually quite complicated. Um, I have one more question. Can I just say oh, one thing, yeah. panel, yeah, before please. you get to that? Yes, um, please. Just, just as a quick comment, because this ties into our, our earlier segment where we were talking about the MFA and also thinking about doctoral education. It seems to me that the, the response that, you know, has been cited back before that you mentioned panel of like the supply and demand it seems to me that one of the other implications from this survey is that it's going to feed right back into uh, graduate education right and are we also part of you know, are we creating part of the problem we're simultaneously trying to this is, to resolve this was in exactly terms of overproduction? this was exactly my question I'm so glad I'm glad you brought it up in other words is there not an obligation to think about how many people with these degrees are being um, uh, matriculated. Absolutely. And I, I think that there's a whole question of responsibility around PhD and MFA programs and they work differently, right? So I mean we could talk about how many PhDs you need in a cohort to like sort of make a graduate program make sense. I mean, you know from being here at Brown and I was in one of these programs that you could have fairly small cohorts in a PhD and kind of stay at a level in which you think you can mostly put your students on the market, right? In a responsible way. MFAs are a little bit more complicated. It's interesting that you bring this up 
because in my other my other big soapbox these days um, is um, is really thinking about the MFA and um, uh, so in some sense I guess at the at the level of if I'm I'm thinking more about acting directing here than design but just for a moment as an example right there's a way in which you have to take a certain number of MFA actors in an MFA acting and directing program to be able to do the production work the pedagogical production work in the particular program and one could argue that like taking 14 instead of three is in fact creating this you know sort of glut in a market for jobs that don't exist I, I hear that but I think the 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 comparative issue is that um is it the problem that we're making so many FA, MFAs or is it that MFAs are so underfunded that many of those students take debt to finish the degree? So I guess to my mind, there's the question of how many people we put out on the market, but there's also the question that they carry debt. So if people go through an MFA program for a while and they don't carry debt, I feel less bad about that, that someone who goes and takes an MFA and takes debt and then faces that market faces, right? Because there's an argument to be made that, yes, the market is saturated, but in a world in which we're not thinking of a model in which actors are hired only by LORT theaters, a person who comes out with an MFA who wants to create art in some sense, right? If they don't come out with debt, they might be able to have a life in which they figure out how to make art differently, not necessarily in that economy, but they're certainly not going to be able to do that if they're carrying a ton of debt. In fact, I don't know how artists who carry debt can in any way fashion a life at this point. So my feeling is that we need to move in a slightly different direction in terms of MFA education, which is to say, how can we, perhaps we only need to have MFA programs that can afford to have their students not take debt, or at least not much debt. Um, And that would probably, in a different way, shrink the number of MFA programs in the country, because you would have to be in places where they could sustain it. The other thing that's interesting, that's infrastructural that I've been thinking about a little bit that seems semantic and totally isn't, um, is that the, the charge I've been making at Brown and our provost, I have to say, Rick Luck has been excellent. I had a meeting with him when I first became chair. Like I was like three days of chair. I wasn't even unpacked actually. And I said, I don't think MFA students should take debt. And he said, I agree with you. And after I picked myself up off the floor and put myself back in my chair, I said, okay. And so, you know, of course there's a whole hard work we have to do now of finding donor funding, frankly, to make it a possibility that we could end up with debt-free MFAs. But to my mind, it's making it debt-free. And one particular move that has to happen is the MFA has to be understood at the university level as equivalent to a PhD, not to an MA degree. And also, it means that MFA Mm -hmm. programs need to stay out of professional studies and stay in graduate schools of humanities. So that seems like super technical, but actually, it's the key to thinking financial aid and thinking that the work that MFAs do is research and thinking of it more like a PhD than an MA or a professional degree. Now is the portion of the podcast when we share our drafts. Our drafts are things we're thinking about, things we're reading, not fully formed thoughts or uh, finished research. Um, Harvey, what is on your mind these days? My own draft is continues from this conversation related to MFA uh, funding, and I've been thinking a lot about this. It's sort of how much debt is a reasonable amount about a debt for a student to take on in pursuit of an MFA, whether it's an acting or directing or design. And it's not an academic exercise; uh, it's a real life scenario here. When you're looking at building programs uh, in which a person could either graduate debt free or owing thirty thousand dollars or owing one hundred thirty thousand dollars. And, and I don't really have any solutions or answers to this, but I'm 
thinking a lot about it. So what I imagine I'll do, as I tend to do when I'm working through things, is to uh, write essentially an op-ed on possibly on debt and the MFA to better think through what we should be doing uh, within this field. Yeah, I think a lot of people are. I mean, the I mean, this sense certainly this you know, connects up to our conversation about the adjunct and contingent labor. Also, I get the sense just more broadly that our people, our students age and millennials more broadly are, are more averse to debt than people my age were, you know, that after 2008, 2009, there's a real resistance to just accepting debt as something that you assume you'll be able to pay off later. And so I imagine it's affecting, it will affect uh, the way that programs are able to recruit the students they want. Speaking of uh, op-eds, though, Harvey, uh, I very much enjoyed your what Hamilton has to teach us uh, about theater op-ed piece. So indeed, I, I, I'll just take a little bit of my draft and say that I, I enjoyed reading that piece as well. Sarah, what else do you have for us? Well, mine also relates to, to the MFA, but in a slightly different way. As I was sort of going back, looking at various things, and I will confess this also came out of my teaching Angels in America this week, so my Tony Kushner file. I had a, a chance to go back and reread his AFA uh, keynote address from 19, I don't know if it was in 1997, I guess it was. Um, and it was published in American theater in, 19, in January of 1998 called A Modest Proposal in which he proposes to get rid of all undergraduates art, arts majors um, as this sort of you know, vocational training. And uh, he's writing this in, again in, in 97, so in the midst of late 90s Clinton you know, V. Newt contract with America, culture wars, and he's talking specific, he frames it specifically within the context of money for abstinence-only education and sort of anti-sex programs aimed at, that's that's his word, anti-sex programs aimed at the youth, and and like how, A, foolish that amount of money sp- spent is and, and how much better to to spend it in the, in the arts, but how the vocational training is is actually not yielding either good students or good artists and how he really calls for this pretty rigorous uh, embrace of a pretty old school liberal arts education. And so now teaching again in a small liberal arts college context and contemplating a future theater dance performance studies major and what that means in this context, I really found this article lots of fun to go back to. It also just reads as a kind of very particular historical moment. Uh, and, and you know, going back to my opening, our first segment, uh, since I was there both when he gave it uh, in you person it. <laughs> and reading the written doc, of which I remember very, very little um, of how he presented it uh, live, but then reading the reading the document, I I thought this was 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 you know quite fun. So anyway, I invite people yes. to to travel back in time with Tony Kushner to 90, 1997. It was a well, a fun year. If you, if you saw him give the speech, then you have all the authority you need to actually write and think. All about. the authority I need. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I think you should just avoid writing. Uh, as I as I as, just don't write. You know, as I vividly recall or. The room was a buzz when Kushner right. said these words, uh, <laughs> you know. And otherwise, I think you were okay. it, it kind of was actually. And what I do remember was nothing he said in that, but what was what what someone said to me after, which was as soon as it had finished, we were leaving, and a friend of mine leaned over and said, "And now let the fawning begin." <laughs> <laughs> 
my draft has to do with this seminar that I've led over the course of the semester on performance and social theory. In a way, my draft is about the unique feeling that I have now just having recently uh, gotten tenure, but also it's about- Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, it's a nice feeling, um, and I'll explain it in just, a, in just a second. I'm teaching this class partly as part of research that I'm doing on a book project that I planned about Freemasonry in 18th century France, which tends to be looked at through the lens of sociability. And so I wanted to sort of dig under the historical foundations of sociability and see where it comes from. And so I you know, created this seminar to read social theory and look at the intersections between performance and social theory. And it's been wonderful. We have a particularly good group of MA graduate students now who are reading this stuff with me. And it's going so well, and we're finding such interesting stuff that I actually think I'm going to write a book on just this topic. Because I think social theory, it's, you know, when you think of the origins of performance studies, you think of literary study of theater and English departments, anthropology, linguistics. You think of these different sort of intellectual traditions that feed into it. And I've always had this impression that like social theory is one of those two, right? But that there's not from what I can tell, a whole lot of systematic exploration of that interplay. And in reading classical social theorists like Marx, Weber, Durkheim, and more contemporary figures like, you know, Goffman, Latour, etc., there's a lot of really interesting conceptual transaction and, and overlap. So there was a moment when I realized like, oh, I I could write this now if I if I wanted. And just as a sort of final little tidbit, one of the f- most fascinating figures that we've discovered, someone that I had never really heard of, is a French sociologist named Gabriel Tard, who was a contemporary of Durkheim's, real critic of Durkheim's. He's much admired by figures like Bruno Latour now and Nicolas Luhmann. And he wrote books, a book called the, uh, I believe, the, the Laws of Imitation, where he argues that imitation is one of the dominant forces that produces the social order. He also was a criminologist who wrote about um, the criminal's tendency to return to the scene of the crime and repeat the crime. So there are these sort of really exciting uh, performance-related concepts that are in it. He also, I discovered browsing online, wrote a science fiction novel about a post-Ice Age humanity living underground and so i'm so excited to get into gabriel tarda that's cool panel that's like that's a full-on nerd out you win <laughs> oh my god that's it's all 2016 that's book number three though, yeah right? right well no book the science fiction novel no that, that'll be four i am gonna write the freemasonry book but uh, i think i might concentrate on social theory for the time being on tap is produced with the support of the performing arts department at Washington University in St. Louis and the master's program in theater and performance studies. Mary Ellen Vander Hayden produces the program. You can find us on the web at www.ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at On Tap Podcast. <laughs>